Well, let me begin today by saying thank you again to those of you who served in Vacation Bible School this week. Very grateful for uh, your sacrifice, your hard work, your service to the Lord. I know you're tired today. Uh, thank you for staggering in, and I pray that uh, you'll find uh, the fellowship of the saints refreshing and restorative uh, to your energies. Uh, let me invite you to turn to Psalm 19. We've been in the Psalms now for, I believe this is our ninth Sunday. We're looking at Psalms, um, let's see, where do we start? 13 through 24 this summer. We'll have a few more Psalms to go, probably through the month of August. Uh, but we want to finish up Psalm 19 this morning. We began last Sunday morning looking at verses 1 through 6. And Lord willing, we'll carry on and uh, complete the psalm. So uh, let's read our passage. I encourage you to open your Bible to uh, read along. If you came without one, there's no doubt a Bible on your phone somewhere. That is the only reason I encourage you to use your phone uh, during the service. Uh, there's a few Bibles under the row in front of you. Grab one of those. Psalm 19. Uh, and let's uh, read this portion of God's Word together before we begin today. Hear the Word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory, glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. For him who has ears to hear, let him hear the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray again and ask his help as we look into this very significant portion of Scripture. Father, we do come now and um, we pray for open eyes and hearing ears. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Without him, our unaided human sight and our unaided human listening will fail us to grasp uh, the truth and hear the truth that your word proclaims. I pray that you would fill me afresh with your spirit, that my words might be um, your words, that I would simply be your mouthpiece, Heavenly Father, 
this morning to declare your truth from Psalm 19. Help us uh, for this task. And we, we plead that you would be with us and draw us near through your spirit, through your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The importance of effective communication is illustrated by this event from the life of movie maker Cecil B. DeMille. Many of you have never heard the name. He was well known for making uh, movies on a large and grandiose scale, impressive cinematography, and, and it was they were epic in the true sense of that word, not like we use it now where everything is epic, but his films were truly epic events and evident in movies like one you are probably familiar with, The Ten Commandments. The book is better, though. I... <laughs> well, one day, um, DeMille was filming one of these epic movements. There's the poster to the Ten Commandments. He was filming a different one, not the Ten Commandments. And uh, again, giving, uh, giving in to his grandiose ideas, he had six cameras at various points to pick up the overall action and five other cameras set up to film plot developments uh, that involved the major characters. This huge cast had begun rehearsing this scene at 6 a.m. They went through it four times, and now it was late afternoon. The, the sun was setting, and there was just enough light to get the shot uh, finished. And so DeMille looked over this panoramic scene before him, saw that... Uh, everything seemed right and gave the command for action. And on those words, 100 extras charged up the hill. Another 100 came storming down the same hill to do mock battle with each other. In a different location, Roman centurions lashed and shouted at 200 slaves who labored to move a huge stone monument uh, toward its resting place. Meanwhile, the principal characters of the film acted out in close-up. Their, their reactions to the battle on the hill, their, their words were drowned out by the noise around them, but the dialogue would be dubbed in later. It took 15 minutes to complete this scene. When it was over, DeMille yelled, Cut! Turned to his assistant, all smiles. That was great, he said. It was CB, the assistant yelled back. It was fantastic. Everything went off perfectly. Enormously pleased, DeMille turned to face the head of his camera crew to find out if all the cameras had picked up what they'd been assigned to him. He waved to the camera supervisor who was across the way on top of another hill. And the camera supervisor waved back, raised his megaphone and called out, Ready when you are, CB! <laughs> Praise the Lord that he has no trouble getting his message across. Our God is not silent. He has spoken to us and continues to speak to us. But how does God do this? How does God reveal himself? How does he speak to us? How does he communicate with us? This is what Psalm 19 addresses, how the Lord communicates, 
how he speaks to you and me. And in Psalm 19, we discover that the Lord speaks to us in two primary ways. The first way that God speaks to us is through nature, and we refer to that as general revelation. It's called general revelation because God reveals his power and greatness through nature to all people everywhere. And last Sunday morning, we looked at this one aspect of how he communicates in the first half of Psalm 19, the first six verses, and we talked about these things. General revelation reveals to us, uh, reveals God. It's continuous, it's abundant, universal, and confrontational. It's so clear, this general revelation to humankind, that human humanity is left without an excuse for not believing in him. And this is what the Apostle Paul concludes in Romans chapter 1. We looked at this passage last week as well. Paul writes in Romans 1, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Thankfully, though, general revelation is not the only way that God communicates with us. In his great mercy, God has spoken to us in a second way. Um, the second way that God speaks to us is through his word, and we refer to this as special revelation. Some refer to it as specific revelation. This second form of communication is what David describes in this latter part of Psalm 19, which is what we want to look at in our time together this morning. If you've been attending New Covenant for a while, and if you wonder why we are so focused on the Word of God and Scripture, then this right here is going to be your answer. And for you old-timers, it will remind us of why the Bible is central in everything we do at New Covenant Bible Church. It's in the name, right? You would pick that up as you hopefully pull in the driveway. So this second primary way is what we want to look at this morning, the, uh, the way God speaks to us through special revelation. And here we'll see that God's word supplies everything you and I need to live in a way that pleases him. And we'll discover eight characteristics of special revelation here. Uh, eight characteristics in this second form of communication. Well, first, we see that special revelation reveals God. And that is more than just stating the obvious uh, what I mean by this is that revelation reveals far more about God. Uh, special revelation reveals far more about God than general revelation does. We see and learn much more about the Lord through his word. This is indicated by the name for God that David uh, uses here in this section. Back in verse 1 last week, uh, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and I pointed out to you that that this is the name El, uh, the most generic name for the Lord in the Old Testament. El reveals God as, as the supreme one of the universe. It's a name that evokes awe and adoration from his creatures. 
a very appropriate name for the Creator. But again, it's the least specific name for God in the Old Testament. But beginning in verse 7, David uses the name Yahweh and uses it seven times in the next eight verses. Yahweh was uh, the name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. Yahweh was uh, the Lord's name for his special people, Israel. Uh, the name Yahweh reveals him as one who, who enters a covenant with people, Israel in, in that case, uh, the one who enters in a, into a relationship with his people. And, and this becomes even more clear in the New Testament uh, scriptures. They tell us that Jesus is Lord, meaning Jesus is Yahweh. And so through special revelation, we see God is more than merely the supreme creator of the universe, a, a distant God. He is also a personal God that draws near to his people, uh, draws near to them through a covenant, through a relationship, and especially so through Jesus Christ. Special revelation reveals God in a way that general revelation never could the covenant God. Second, it, it's, it reveals his will. Secondly, uh, uh, you'll notice as I've read here, one thing that stands out about Psalm 19 is the different terms that David uses in these verses to describe special revelation. Uh, six different ways uh, to describe uh, the Word of God, much like Psalm 119. If you've read Psalm 119, 175 verses, each verse using a different word uh, to refer to the Bible. David does something similar using these very same terms from Psalm 119. Uh, and while each of these different terms, the law, the testimony, precepts, commandment, each of them has just a slightly different nuance to it. They're essentially synonyms, different words that describe the same thing, and that's the Word of God. We could spend all morning looking at the, at the different shades of what they mean. I don't think that's David's intention. I think he's just using them as synonyms, referring to Scripture. What they hold in common is far more important to the, the shades of their different meanings. What they hold in common, what they, all six of them communicate, is they present the word of God as words to be obeyed. Special revelation is authoritative revelation telling us what God desires from his people, what God requires from those he's entered a covenant with, which is, uh, which is you and me, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce comments, what is the one characteristic that these six terms have in common? They all portray the Bible as words to be obeyed. That is how David viewed the Bible, as the word of God to be obeyed, because it is the word of God. It was to be received by him and others as authoritative, inerrant, and absolutely binding. You may not recognize, well, that's not my slide. So anyway, yeah, here we go. 
General George S. Patton, uh, who uh, was in both World War I and World War II, instrumental in helping the Allies defeat Nazi Germany. And while he was uh, important to the war effort, he was also an extremely difficult man uh, for those who served under him and even for those who were above him. Dwight Eisenhower found, found him, although they were friendly, they were, uh, he was difficult to deal with. His son published a book um, of Patton's thoughts on leadership after his death. And Patton offers this advice on choosing uh, leaders, uh, picking officers to promote. And he offers this, which is fairly decent advice. Picking the right leader is the most important task of any commander. I line up the candidates and say, men, I want a trench dug behind warehouse 10. Make this trench eight feet long, three feet wide, and six inches deep. While the candidates are checking their tools out of the warehouse, I watch them from a distance. They puzzle over why I want such a shallow trench. They argue over whether six inches is deep enough for a gun emplacement. Some complain uh, that such a trench should be dug with power equipment. Others gripe that it's too hot or too cold to dig. If the men are above the rank of lieutenant, there will be complaints that they should not be doing such lowly labor. Finally, one man will order, what difference does it make what he wants, wants to do with this trench? Let's get it dug and get out of here. That man will get the promotion. Pick the man who can get the job done. So I want to put it to you that I think that we approach obedience to God's word like these men. We find it inconvenient. Ah, that sounds so legalistic. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, that's for younger Christians to follow, but I'm kind of beyond that. And we hem and haw and maybe delay or something along those lines. But these are the words of Almighty God. And it's true that uh, part of the Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And, and that part of his law, we, we don't have to observe the ceremonies or the sacrifices any longer. Christ has fulfilled those. But what's left is that we, we do. Then the, the government has fulfilled the judicial law of the Old Testament. The government takes the place of uh, the judicial part of the law. We're left with God's moral law represented in the Ten Commandments. We're, we're left with Christ's commands of the New Testament. And I simply want to put it to you that they are to be obeyed. He doesn't want to know your, your reasons why it's taking you so long to obey it. Get, get it done. This is not to promote some kind of Nike Christianity. Just, just stop whining and do it. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, we are empowered by God's Spirit to do everything that His Word commands us to do. We are not called to work up enough steam to pull it off. We're to rely completely upon God's Spirit to do anything His Word commands. It's as though there is a promise. Uh, 
underneath every precept that he gives us. But they're his words. And the second characteristic of, of special revelation is that they reveal his will. And these are words to be obeyed. Well, there's another characteristic. Thirdly, uh, his special revelation is complete. God's word supplies all that we need to follow him uh, and live in a way that is pleasing to him. Notice verse 7 in your Bible. Look at what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect. We've seen that word perfect before. It's occurred in other Psalms before this. It's a term that's familiar in, uh, in the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Uh, this word is used to refer to the animals that were required. They were to be blameless and whole and without defect. And this is the term David is applying to the word of God. It is whole. It is complete. It is without defect. Uh, David is telling us that God's word is comprehensive and, and lacks nothing. It is perfect in that it covers every aspect of spiritual life. We work through how to apply those things in different areas, of course. But what the Bible says of itself is, is that we've been given everything in special revelation to live uh, the Christian life and, and live in a way that pleases the Lord. Listen to Peter say it in Second uh, Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to, to spiritual life and godly living through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And Paul says this as well in these familiar verses. Boy, I, I feel like I put these verses up every other week. They're so important to us. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The, the word equipped means fully fitted out. It was used of a ship, a sailing vessel that was loaded to the gills, completely loaded with its cargo to set sail. Because the word is complete and whole, lacking nothing. And I just want to ask you, is that your opinion of Scripture? It's such an important concept for believers in Jesus Christ to grasp that he has not left us here clueless in this world of marketing that we live in we are so often told of, of how deficient we are modern psychology would tell you that, that you don't have what it takes you need to see a therapist and in some cases that might be the case but God's word provides so much to us. It is complete uh, in areas of spiritual life and godliness. It is sufficient. We refer to this as the sufficiency of Scripture. It is a crucial and important truth. 
And because it's complete and whole and lacking nothing, David goes on to say it's able to revive the soul. Look at what he says in verse uh, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, whole, complete, reviving the soul. Uh, that term reviving literally means to turn or return. Uh, special revelation has the power to return and restore a person to a right relationship with the Lord. The, the King James Version said, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. We understand from Scripture that it is the Holy Spirit working through God's Word that saves us and not merely man's comments on God's Word. It's the Spirit working through the Word of God that saves us. That's why our main thing on Sunday is the proclamation of this Word, because this is where the power lies. It refers to more than just the initial act of converting a sinner, though. The term reviving also indicates that the Word of God restores spiritual life to us when it's been drained from us through suffering or through temptation or through serving others. When you, when you are tired and emptied by life, one of the most important things that we can do other than take a nap is to refill our souls with God's word to, to, so that it can restore us and restore spiritual life in us. The, the, the writer, the author of Psalm 119 uh, makes this clear. He repeats it many times in uh, Psalm 119. In verse 25, he says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. In verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. And also 156, great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules because the word is complete, whole, and lacking nothing. It's able to both convert the soul bring it from death to life through conversion, as well as restore our souls, restore spiritual life when it's been drained out of us. Uh, listen to Charles Spurgeon comment on this sufficiency of special revelation. He said, The gospel is a complete scheme or law of gracious salvation presenting to the needy sinner everything that his terrible necessities can possibly demand. There are no redundancies and no omissions in the word of God and in the plan of grace. Why then do men try to paint this lily and gild this refined gold? He's referring to the word. Why do men try to paint this lily and gild this refined gold? In other words, thinking that it needs a little more oomph to it. He goes on, the gospel is perfect in all its parts and perfect as a whole. It is a crime to add to it, treason to alter it, and felony to take from it. So the third characteristic is that a special revelation is complete. Oh, it's sufficient. 
And I encourage you, friend, when you are drained, uh, marshal your energies and open up to the book of Psalms and simply start reading. And you will find one of them to suit your circumstances and it will minister to you. Well, fourth, it imparts wisdom. And again, we probably already knew this. God's word instills skill in godly living. The second half of verse 7 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Sure means uh, reliable, trustworthy, unwavering, immovable. Uh, according to Dr. Steve Lawson, God's word is neither unstable nor fallible. That means capable of error. It's neither unstable nor fallible, but unwavering and immovable. Again, Charles Spurgeon adds, what a blessing that in a world of uncertainties we have something sure to rest upon. We hasten from the quicksands of human speculations to the firm ground of divine revelation. And because it's sure and reliable, it's able to, to impart wisdom, uh, is, is what it says here. Making wise the simple. That's a, wisdom is a, is a term we see, of course, throughout the book of Proverbs, referring to acquired skill in living a godly life, or, or skill in godly living. And this wisdom, David says, is imparted to the simple. Simple is a, a term... That comes from a word that means to be open, uh, to be open-minded. It, it describes the person who's gullible and susceptible to false teaching, someone who fails to shut his mind to error. And by taking the trustworthy word, this person who's left his mind wide open learns to shut the door on error and close his or her mind to what is false. It it imparts wisdom to the inexperienced and gullible Christian, fourth of all. Fifth, uh, it brings joy to those who keep his commandments and, and live by his word. David uh, says this in verse 8, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Right refers to something that is straight as opposed to crooked. In other words, God's word cuts a straight line. It's the straight path. It, it, it helps us steer a straight course through life. This is uh, the promise of uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which you are perhaps familiar with. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your make straight your paths. And note the result of walking on this straight path. It says rejoicing the heart. Living out the plan of God brings joy to our lives. David repeats this down in verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Of course, this doesn't... Uh, Eliminate suffering. Scripture promises that to all believers. Uh, we will suffer as we follow Jesus Christ, as we sang about this morning. But what it does mean is that we will escape the negative consequences of living a sinful lifestyle. 
We will escape much of what the world experiences simply because we're on a different road than those who don't know Christ. This right path, this straight path has wonderful benefits to it. Uh, there is great reward in following God's word. Uh, Jeremiah described it uh, in uh, the book of Jeremiah chapter 15. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So fifthly, this brings joy uh, to those who keep God's commands and, and live by his word. Sixth is that it teaches discernment. This is much like what we've already mentioned uh, in this phrase in verse 8, teaches that God's special revelation directs our steps in a world of confusing moral cho choices. Look at the second half of verse 8 with me. It says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Pure uh, is translated in some versions, uh, radiant. And that word can mean pure, of course, but it can also be translated as radiant. That's the idea, uh, uh, is that the Word of God gives light, helps us see the world clearly, helps us recognize which road we should take. Special revelation, again, this uh, guides us and directs us through confusing moral choices. And, and you're familiar with this verse, I'm sure. In Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It, it, it gives insight and illumination on which way we should go. Proverbs also describes it. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. It is, uh, it teaches discernment. Just a couple more now. Seventh, it... Uh, is enduring. And the next point, I don't think I've ever said eighthly in a message before, but I will be able to this morning. Seventhly, it's enduring. Unlike revel a general revelation, we're told that general revelation, creation, will pass away at the return of Jesus Christ. Special revelation, on the other hand, will last forever. And we read this in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Uh, first of note is this phrase, the fear of the Lord. David is substituting a, a, a phrase for the word of God for the effect it produces. He means the word of God, but he, named, he writes instead the, the, the effect the word of God has on us. The fear of the Lord, meaning, meaning not terror, but awe and reverence for him. I think it's just worth pausing to saying this. This is so uncommon. And it's so uncommon even in the Christian church. It's so uncommon in the church across the United States. I've shared before how casual things became in the 70s and, and 80s. And I grew up in that era, and I was a youth pastor in the 90s, and... Uh, our goal was just to make Jesus as cool as we possibly could and 
the phrase the fear of the Lord did not come up often in my youth group talks. And this is a very bad thing, and I hate to think that I will stand before the Lord and have to give an account for that. And I've shared before how, how flippant I had become with the things of God and casual. So if we just pause for a moment and think about what we're talking about. We've been talking, last week it was about the creator of the universe. The, the supreme one. I mean, this is a God who spoke the world into being. And again, if you th think that's nothing, then, then go try it. You can't even get your kids to do what you want them to do. And, but this is a God who is so supremely powerful that all he had to say was be there. Uh, let there be light. And there was light. I mean, how does that work? And so, that supreme being, these are his words. These are his words. That that creator who made it all has spoken and has given it to us in writing. And this is what he says. And as we read it, we are reading the words of the man who spoke earth and this vast universe and Jesus Christ who keeps it there by the word of his power. Jupiter was still there this morning. Right there. Saturn was over here. Just like the day before and the day before that. Because Christ keeps them there. This, this is and, and so... The effect is, yeah, I know this, I know that. No, no, the effect is that it produces reverence in us, the fear of the Lord. The word of God is, is should, I would say, that hateful word, should produce in us this awe of him. And David says the fear of the Lord is clean. And this means free from imperfection. It is uncontaminated. No impurity or defilement. One of the verses we would use to uh, assert that the very first copies of God's word were without error, inerrant. Those first copies we call the original autographs. Uh, the very first ones, the, the one Moses wrote down, when people began to copy it, they did a great job copying, but in the New Testament in particular, a, a, a man, a, a scribe, would add a word of explanation. We, it's not that we lack any part of the Bible. We don't have 95%. We've actually got about 110%. And most of the time we study in Scripture, we have to determine, okay, what did this man actually say? Was this added? Yeah, he might have added this word to help us f explain it. The, the original had no mistakes. How's that possible? Because God spoke it. And it's his word. 
It is a jaw-dropping thing that anything could be without error. Theoretically, the phone book could have no mistakes in it. There are other things that's possible that they don't have errors in them, but this doesn't have errors in the very first copy because of who said it, because he is without error. There was a seminary student, uh, he was from a different country, he was undergoing his uh, doctoral examination, he was asked about inerrancy. And he replied to the, to the panel that was grilling him, he, he was asked about the inerrancy of scripture. And he simply replied, but in a very profound way, all scripture is breathed out by God. Does God have bad breath? And, and, and that's very, you know, struggling with the English language as he, as he said those things, his point clearly taken is that God does not have bad breath. The first copy of scripture was, as this word says, pure, uh, clean rather, in verse 9. The word of fear of the Lord is clean, it's flawless, infallible. And because it is so, look at what it says about it here. It will endure forever. It will endure forever. Peter agrees with this and said in his epistle, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Jesus said it even more directly than Peter. Heaven and earth will pass away. Again, that's general revelation. But my words, special revelation, will not pass away. Listen to Steve Lawson uh, comment. The Bible will never pass away, nor will it ever need amending, updating, or editing. Instead, it will remain permanently relevant and eternally true. Wow. It means that next year, we won't need another version. We won't need the Bible 2.0. And then like all your updates, 2.1, 2.15, 2.2, and on and on. These iTunes updates go, you know, and uh, it will not need updating. This gentleman was a French philosopher during the Age of Enlightenment. And Voltaire's great claim was that he could destroy Christianity in the span of 50 years. I think he said something along the lines, it took centuries to develop it. I will destroy it in 50 years. Well, as you can see by the date here, he died in 1778 and did not manage to destroy Christianity. I mean, here we are, right? Uh, years after his death, a, a minister named Peter McKenzie was touring Madame Tussauds Waxworks in London. I don't know if you've ever been to a wax museum. Not sure they're around much anymore, but they would have wax figures of famous people. This one actually had a wax figure of Voltaire. Uh, pointing to one object in the display where Voltaire was, the tour guide said to this minister, that is the actual chair in which Voltaire sat and wrote 
his atheistic blasphemies. The minister replied, is that the chair? Are you talking about the very chair? Affirmed that he was. And then without asking permission, the minister stepped over the cord, uh, closing the exhibit, sat down in Voltaire's chair, and sang at the top of his lungs, as only a, a convinced believer could, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. If you missed the point, he was essentially dancing on Voltaire's grave is what he was doing. It endures. It endures forever. And then lastly, you've been patient. Thank you for hanging with me. The eighth characteristic of special revelation, it's desirable. More valuable than anything the world has to offer. Did you hear that? More valuable than anything the world has to offer. Those are, those are that's quite a, quite a boast. Uh, an outrageous claim, but listen to David in the middle of verse 9. The rules of the, uh, no, let's see, where am I? The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Yeah, that, that begins the point we're getting to. Uh, we've seen these terms already mentioned as synonyms in, in uh, the verses above. True and, and righteous, they are right. Uh, they're reliable, they're pure. But verse 10 goes on to get to where I'm leading to. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. I want you to notice the word desired in your Bible. Uh, more to be desired are they than gold, and that is the correct way to translate the word. The same Hebrew word is used in other places uh, where it has a negative meaning and a sinful meaning, and there it's translated covet. And to covet is to sinfully desire something that you don't have. Uh, but someone else does have. We might simply say coveting is akin to obsessing over something. The Tenth Commandment uses this term. You shall not covet. Same Hebrew verb. And in the garden it says that Eve saw that the fruits was coveted for the wisdom it could give. When Achan stole from the plunder in Jericho, Joshua 7 says, I coveted them. And that kind of coveting, of course, refers to desiring something in a sinful way, but verse 10 teaches us that there is a good kind of coveting, coveting a, a holy coveting. Verse 10 encourages this kind of desire to let this holy coveting for God's word consume us, to, to possess the word of God for what it reveals about Christ and for all the benefits it imparts to us. This holy coveting is encouraged. The writer of Psalm 119, again we go back to this chapter, this important chapter, and, and this man clearly possessed this holy coveting. He says, 
in uh, Psalm 119, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. A few verses later, behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. In verse 131, behold, uh, excuse me, that's 40. Here's 131. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Finally, I, I, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. The New Testament picks up this theme and Peter impresses it upon us in, in this verse. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And, and perhaps no one but a mom and dad with young children understand the eagerness of, uh, that Peter is writing about here. This longing for milk. It's desirable. David says, and he goes on to say, it's also sweeter than honey in the next phrase. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And I've shared my opinion with you before. There's nothing like honey on a fresh homemade biscuit. Uh, I got to enjoy one for dinner this Tuesday night at Vacation Bible School. But just think of what David is holding out to you through this image. He's telling you about how sweet God's word can be and how satisfying and the satisfaction it can bring to our lives. And I don't know about you, I'm prone to make noises as I eat my dinner and, you know, I say, mmm, a lot and this is awesome and phrases like that. I, that same sound you make having a biscuit with honey. Oh, so sweet. It's the same kind of reaction that God's Word can produce in your soul. Have you ever known that? Have you known that? It's what it's meant to be like. And, and perhaps you struggle. You've never experienced that. That comparison of, of the, the word being like honey on your tongue. And, you know, I would, I, if you struggle with that, I would love to help you experience that. I would love to have coffee with you and maybe a biscuit with honey and <laughs> talk about how we go about that and how we read the word. Steve Lawson says the sacred writings are sweeter than honey, fully satisfying our spiritual hunger and a source of great pleasure and enrichment. Mom and Dad, maybe what you need to do is, is uh, I don't know, stop by Bojangles and, or stop by Publix and grab a tin of biscuits on your way home and cook them up and, and talk to your children about how sweet the Word of God can be when, when there's, it's like this honey. I think that would be a great uh, object lesson, one that makes my mouth water just thinking about it. Uh, 
it's just staggering. The treasure that David is unfolding here in verses 7 through 11 with special revelation. These wonderful descriptions. Again, these eight things it reveals God clearly, more clearly, in a greater depth than general revelation could. Reveals his will to us, is complete, it's not lacking, imparts wisdom to the simple, it brings joy when you follow it. Because you dodge all the misery that sin brings along with it. It teaches you the straight path to walk down. It, it will last forever and it is more desirable than anything you can think of on this planet. It is that good. I, um, I'm going to stop here for today. There, are, there is one part left, but I'm not going to go into it yet. I want to leave you here with this taste in your mouth for the word. Oh, friends, I pray that you have, and, and if not have, you will develop a voracious appetite for Scripture. That you will say, oh, I, I want more. I want more. I want to know more about Christ. I want to see the glory of Christ explained in His Word. I want to see the glories of God in creation. I want to see His majesty and frankly, I must tell you that that appetite should be normal. That appetite for Scripture should be normal in your life. John Piper suggested sometimes we lose that appetite when we nibble at the table of the world. But I want to encourage you that, that this word is, it's delicious. I don't mean that flippantly. It is, it is sweet for the salvation it brings, for the grace that it equips us with. And I encourage it to you, and I encourage you to tuck in, as they say, across the pond and feast your soul on these words of Christ. We, of course, need your Spirit to instill this in us, to renew this hunger that has perhaps ebbed. Lord, that you would um, renew our hearts today and show us how desirable your Word is, that you have drawn near to us through your Word, that you enter a covenant with us, the very creator of the universe, and especially so through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're grateful, Father, for your profound mercies to us. And do arouse us and nourish us with your word. Even today, Father, we ask through Christ. Amen.